Good evening. We are in the middle of discussing. Apologies, I'm a few minutes late. Not really much, but a couple of minutes late. I had to go to a Shevra office for a minute. Um, so the week of Simchas this week, Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, there's a flood of Simchas. We are in the middle of discussing the halachas of the kitchen, which we've worked our way through to discuss milky and meaty and parav and combinations of the two. What I would like to do this week is move on to how they're relevant in going away, if a person going away in a, in, in a non-Jewish home, how that's the information that we've learned up until now, how that's relevant. And then if we finish that in time, we'll begin to start our lochas of Tfilas Haderich and finish them off in two weeks' time. And if we have spare time, we'll just do a few basic halachas of Tishabov and uh, when Tishabov is in Nitra, the day after Tishabov, when you're allowed to wash, etc., etc., and we'll do that in the, in the shir in two weeks' time. We finished off in the previous year, right, right at the end, if those who were there can remember, where we discussed the, we've discussed what's known as natbanat, the, the transmission of taste from one item, one vessel to another vessel, and how that affects uh, parav. So for example, we said something which is natbanat, something which is a secondary degree of taste, doesn't create a status on a power of food. And we discuss that at length, and therefore we finished off by saying that if a person would want to, he's able to wash up his power of in the milky or wash up his power of in the meaty sink, because the worst that's going to be is going to be second degree taste that may be transmitted from the sink to the vessels to the power of. Of course, you can't wash it up together with milky and you shouldn't wash it, wash it up together with meaty, but in a milk, milky sink or meaty sink, that's not a problem because that's going to be secondary taste. And that's not the, the secondary, secondary degree taste doesn't create a status on the item, which is where we finished off in the previous year. What, what's relevant for us now is one more piece of information, which is we're then going to move over to discuss some of the practicalities of being on holiday. And that is that the there is a very important halacha which you must be aware of when it comes to secondary degree secondary degree taste. And that is secondary degree taste is only relevant when we're dealing with something which is mutter. So, for example, we're dealing with milky or we're dealing with meaty in reference to parav. So the actual taste is something which is permitted. It's just can that permitted taste create a status? Then we consider it not, but not secondary degree loses its potency. And once it's lost its potency, it can't create a status. If, however, I have a pot which is traif, which has inside it taste which is already of a status, of a negative status, it's traif, then I can cook in it 10 times and transfer it from one to the other to the other. It always remains traif. And I will always have traif inside my pot. So despite the fact that when it comes to secondary degree taste, we say that it's more lenient and doesn't have the potency to create a status, but it does have the ability to continue a status, to maintain a status. And therefore, it will be forbidden to wash kosher, cutlery, crockery, etc. in a non-kosher sink, even though that sink is going to be secondary degree taste, which then is imparted from the sink into the cutlery and crockery. But secondary degree taste is not a op- opt-out clause when it comes to bleas. It just means that it can't create a status, but it can continue a status. It can enable that 
trefer blia, that trefer taste to enter into another keli and create that keli to continue with the status of being, of being treif. It's not creating, it's just continu- continuing. That it can do. And that therefore brings us to the problem when we are away on holiday. What do we do with washing up in the sink? Therefore, by default, you cannot use a non-Jewish sink. Using a non-Jewish sink for washing up hot would almost inevitably, unless it's not so hot, inevitably transfer the bleas from the sink into your crockery and cutlery. And when it transfers the bleas from your sink to your crockery and cutlery, you are going to be rendering all your crockery and cutlery trafe. And that's not something that you want to do when you're wearing holiday. You can technically cushion your sink like we've explained when it comes to cashering for Pesach. But if you were in holiday for a week, for two weeks, it seems to be a rather laborious job to cashier your sink for two weeks. And not only that, it's actually, cashering is not always an ideal because inevitably cashering is not going to work 100%. We won't have the right equipment when we're on holiday. The sink may not be clean enough when we're on holiday. Uh, and, and any other factors that come in, maybe a sink that you're not used to and, and you're going to miss out every bits of it. And therefore, my advice to you would be not to bother cashering and just to cover. To cover would be to either use a bowl. If you use a bowl, then you don't need to worry about it. Or to cover the sink with, with, uh, with some sort of silver foil or plastic. I don't know. Uh, make sure you change it regularly because otherwise it will smell. Uh, but covering will resolve the problem in, in a far more quicker and efficient way than actually cashering. If you do want to cash it, then you have to go through the whole process that we've discussed in the pre-Pesach Shurim, where you need to clean the sink, make sure it's properly clean, make sure the sink is not 24 hours, hasn't been used for non-kosher food for 24 hours, that means you have to wait till the next day after you arrive in your holiday house because you have no knowledge that it hasn't been used up until the moment before you arrived. And therefore, you have to wait 24 hours. Then you have to get a kettle, which is still on the boil, and pour it from the drain around all the areas inside the sink and around up the sides of the sink, etc. And if it's got a draining board, down the draining board. And that way, you could cash it technically, but it's a real laborious job and not something I would love to do on holiday. So simplest thing to do, is to use a, a bowl. That's a much simpler option, and it would resolve the problem without taking up much of your time. Moving on from there, therefore, what about using a kettle in a, in a holiday home? Now, using a kettle in a holiday home on paper should seem harmless because when I use my kettle, a kettle is used for water, boiling hot water. So boiling water is kosher. There's no bishal akum on boiling water because water can be drank without being cooked, so there's no bishal akam on water, and therefore my kettle should be absolutely fine. My non-Jewish kettle should be absolutely fine to be used on paper, when I think about it on paper. But practically speaking, we always try to avoid using non-Jewish kettles because we live in a world of instants, and we have no idea what people have put into their kettle. They could have put in instant soups. They could take the kettle and pour it straight over the chicken to clean it. They could pour it over over tray of meat. Uh, uh, there's no end of the options that could have been could have been done with these with a, with a kettle, and therefore to actually use a kettle is again entering into a area where we're not quite sure what's going on. And even if the kettle is more than 24 hours old, where we say the taste is nice and time if gum, it's considered negative. We're not allowed to use something which has got taste, even if it's more than 24 hours old in it. And therefore, ideally. One shouldn't be using a kettle on holiday. If one's in a in, in a situation where there's no option, then there may be slight room for, for maneuver here because we're not dealing here with a vadai, we're dealing here with a sophic, and if it's more than 24 hours old, it's only drabonon, but it's not something I'm comfortable with. I can't really say to you that I'm comfortable with using kettles in a holiday home. Another item of 
use in a kitchen, particularly in a holiday home, is a bread toaster. Now, a bread toaster, again, on paper, should appear to be, should appear to be okay, because there's a direct flame there. The flame is very, very hot because it's burning the bread. And therefore, it should really kasha the toaster every time you use it. So technically speaking, I should just put a piece of bread in it, let it get really, really hot, burn everything out, and then maybe throw that piece of bread away, but I can actually then use a toaster. And that should be practically, that's really what should really happen. And it may actually happen. I have no knowledge. I'm not much of a technician to know the, the reality of what goes on when I'm using a bread toaster. But my my feeling is, and if you would look in your bread toaster, you will find crumbs in there that are not completely burnt. And we must remember that non-Jewish bread can have fat in it. It can have fats definitely around the, they smear around the, uh, the bread tins that they put the bread in and they could have real proper 100% traif in it. And if it doesn't actually get hot enough to, to kasher it completely and to be malabin it to, to go through a process of libun, then you, you shouldn't really be using it. Now I can't honestly say to you whether it does or doesn't. Because it's, when you look inside, there does seem to be bread in there. There seems to be crumbs of bread and doesn't always look inedible. It does seem sometimes to be still edible. And if I always get nervous when it comes to bread, 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 uh, toasters, uh, I'm talking about a, a bread toaster where you put the, drop the bread in and you press a button down and it makes it into toast and then it pops up. I'm not talking about cheese toasters and things like that. Sandwich toasters, just a plain bread toaster, which technically on paper should be permitted. And maybe that if one's really desperate, may, maybe room for, for leniency, but it was something that would bother me to use. It's knowing that the, that you turn a bread toast upside down, there's going to be a shower of breadcrumbs, edible breadcrumbs seemingly <coughs> pouring out of the, of the toaster. Comes to ovens, a non-Jewish oven in a holiday home, then we, we really get back to the, discussions that we've discussed in the past. An oven can be absolutely filthy. And even if you're spending a lot of money on your holiday home, very often the ovens are not clean. And even if they are clean, they're full of bleers of real proper uh, treif meat, which is novelis and treifus and, and chaza and everything else that goes into these ovens. Uh, unless it's a paralytic, you're not going to be able to cash it. And even if it is a paralytic, which I doubt very much you'll find a paralytic uh, oven in the in a holiday home, Technically, on a paralytic, you could you could use it, but without a paralytic, you're really going to have a, tra- a job and a half to cash that oven. It's going to be a job and a half, and just not really doable. And therefore, the best thing to do if you want to use an oven on holiday is to make sure that whatever you're going to be using in the oven is double wrapped. Double wrapped means that you have, for example, a silver foil container with a lid on it, and then another layer of silver foil around the outside of the container which completely seals it with a double seal, double closed, doesn't need sealing with a proper seal, but it needs to be closed. So it's got double double enclosure around it, and then you can put it in any oven, even a trafer oven, and that's not a problem. The You have to make sure the seals are properly closed, and you must be aware, though, that don't start doing double wrapping and putting in the oven, and then after an hour and a half realizing that it's not cooked properly, I'm blaming me. I'm not much of a cook, but my feeling is that if you are going to double wrap, it might take you a bit longer to cook than when it's not double wrapped. So do take that into account. The same when it comes to a microwave. A microwave is also difficult to cache, and particularly in non-Jewish microwaves, they are very often unclean. They're not clean. They're not perfectly clean. And to clean them would mean clean them properly and cashing them with a bowl of water for an hour. It, it may be, but it's just 
doesn't sound right to me. It doesn't sound right. I don't believe you're going to be able to clean that microwave properly. You're much better off to double wrap in a microwave as well. And you can double wrap in a microwave, particularly if you have microwave containers. You can uh, put, a, put the food in a microwave container and then wrap it in, in plastic, two layers of plastic. Uh, watch it. It doesn't burst open because sometimes the steam, internal steam can force the, the, Plastic to undo, but if you keep keep an eye, keep an eye on it, you should be able to use a microwave uh, comfortably without getting involved in any shilas of trafus at all. So I haven't been very helpful when it comes to the, to your holiday home at the moment, uh, and unfortunately that's just the reality. Using a non-kosher kitchen is always problematic. Cookers are l- less of a problem, particularly gas cookers. As long as they're clean, the, you burn, all you have to do is just burn it out a little bit and technically you can use it as it is. If you want to be a bit frummer, buy some chicken wire and put the chicken wire on top. So then you're not actually touching the, the pan rests. Uh, there's, there's no cross contamination whatsoever then because you're distant from the pan rests and you can then use your cooker fine without any issue at all. If you have a ceramic or, or a uh, halogen glass top, then you have a bit more of a problem because you can't really cash a glass and we try not to rely on cashing glass if we don't have to. And therefore, best if you can buy one of these silicone mats. Again, your pot will not be touching the glass. It won't damage the glass because silicone doesn't damage the glass and you will be absolutely fine. If you go on holiday and you have an induction hub, and again, induction hubs are very difficult to cash as we discussed pre-Pesach, if you can buy one of these, I can't remember what they're called, these induction uh, little circular um, rings that are, are like induction transformers, you can actually use them on normal pots as well. You can use that. And by using that, you're not actually putting your pot on the gas stove and therefore you are absolutely fine. And you can use that without any worries. An agar, which is uh, the old fashioned ones and probably the modern ones too, are very fixed heat. They have uh, rings on top which have a fixed heat to them. Uh, therefore, a bit difficult to cash it because it could be kind of boiling hot food, spilling onto the agar. Very bit difficult to cash it. But again, if you cover it with silver foil or cover it with something, then that shouldn't be a problem and you should be able to use that as well. Work surface in a non-Jewish kitchen is very, very hard to get around. Uh, there is a real worry that Previous tenants of the house have spilt liquid, hot liquid, tray for liquid on the sides, hot food, hot cheese, hot meat has spilt onto the sides. And these sides are full of bleers, full of taste of things which are really trafe. And by using the side, you're risking that if there's any water underneath your pot and your pot goes onto the side, that those bleers could, and your pot's hot, could technically be drawn out of the side into your pot. And therefore, you're best to make sure that you never use the side open for anything hot. And even for anything cold, if you can, uh, but for hot, for sure, you should make sure that you cover it. You don't need to cover your whole kitchen side, but you have to cover the area that you'll be using with your hot pots. Or make sure you have pan rests so that the pot doesn't actually touch the side, just sits on the pan rest. And you need to be really careful that there shouldn't be any cross-contamination. But if you do that, you're far better off trying to cash the sides, as we explained pre-Pesach, is almost impossible. Cashing sizes is really, really, really difficult and, and uh, should be avoided as, as much as we can. 
So that's relevant in, in a kitchen. With one more area of, of kitchen which we haven't discussed, which was brought to, was mentioned a couple of weeks ago, or was it a couple of shorim ago? I don't remember which one. And that is the halacha of dipping a knife in sand, in soil. What, where does that come into the relevance of a kitchen, and how does one make it a knife need to be uh, pushed into the earth? nine times, and that's the one area which you haven't discussed, and I did say I would mention it, so I'll mention it now. And that's a different halacha, which is not relevant to what we've discussed up until now. Until now, we've been discussing cross-contamination through heat, cross-contamination of food through heat. We have discussed briefly cross-contamination through sharp foods and duchka sakina, the pressure of the knife on sharp foods can also cross-contaminate. But this is a slightly different halacha. This is if a person used a knife say a meaty knife to cut something which is hard and fatty then we worry that the the fat because you put pressure on that item the fat is going to remain on the knife and even if you clean the knife in the sink there's going to be residue of that fat which you may not notice still on the knife and it cannot be removed just by plain cleaning and the only way you can remove it is by sticking it into hard ground not wet ground hard ground it's got to be, can't be too hard because anyone get in. It's got to be hard enough that it's not soft, but soft enough that you can actually get the knife in. So you have to take the knife and stick it into the ground nine times. And you can't stick it into the same place because you stick it into the same place, the ground's not, not hard anymore. So you, you've already made a hole. So you have to find nine separate places where you can actually stick this knife in. And we say that the, the friction between the knife into this, in this, into the earth nine times will remove any residue of fat that still remains on the surface of the knife. There is some opinions that say that there's, an, there's some sort of taste that actually enters into the knife, not deep enough that you need to cashier it, but it does enter to the extent that you need to actually stick it into the ground nine times so that you can remove that residue of fat. Now, because the earth has to be not soft and not hard, it's actually quite quite difficult for us here in this country to find that level of earth. Maybe after the heat wave that we're having now, you might find some earth like that. On a normal average day in, the, in England, with the weather as, as temperamental as it is, usually the earth is too soft for us to be able to fulfill this din of Ni'itza Bekarka, sticking it into the ground uh, and f- enable that to remove the residue of fat. That's something which is difficult for us to, to actually achieve. So many of the poskim today are a little bit makel, and they came around, came around with an idea that if you use steel wool, I don't know if steel wool still exists, but if you use steel wool, I'm sure it does, if you use steel wool, this, the friction of the steel wool on the knife is equivalent to the friction of the knife being pushed into earth, which is not soft and not too hard. Therefore, they were quite makel to wash it in the sink with steel wool, with soap, whatever it takes, and rub it up and down at least nine times. And by doing that, you are fulfilling the criteria of sticking in the ground nine times, and you're going to be removing the residue of fat that's left on this knife. And this is something that does happen at times. You can have, a, particularly if your back's turned and you allow your yeshiva bochum or some girls or, or visitors or whatever it may be to to use your kitchen. Before you turn around, they could be using your power of knife to cut cheese. They could be using your meaty knife to cut cheese and vice versa. And therefore, one has to be careful. And if that does happen, the simplest way to get around it is to, the simplest way to get around it is to use steel wool. According to most Poskin, that's sufficient, but you have to do it nine times. Rub up and down. Yes. Rabbi, you know, sorry to disturb you. Why nine? 
Wayne I have no Knight idea, because Chazal understood that nine times is the amount of times it's going to take to clean the knife. If you go to Chasna's, Mrs. Flax, and you look at the state of the cleanliness of the uh, cutlery, you might realize that nine times is probably what you need to clean them. <laughs> Chazal also came out with another halacha, and that is that you need to, you shouldn't be using meaty knife to cut bread if you're going to be using that bread for milky meal. Which is uh, an interesting halacha because in the context of the rules that we've discussed, it doesn't really seem to fit in, but it seems to be a takonos chazal that, that uh, not to cut bread with a milky knife if you're going to eat it with meaty meal and not to cut bread with a milky knife, with, with a meaty knife if you're going to eat it with a meaty meal. Do find a parav knife to cut your bread. And most of our bread knives are parav uh, and that doesn't therefore create a problem. But if one's on holiday and doesn't have a parav knife, be aware not to use your meaty knife for Milky meals and milky knife for meaty meals. If you don't have a milky or meaty knife, you only got one of them and you want to cut your bread with the knife that you're using and then eat the bread with the opposite type of food, then if you do the eat sabakaka, if you do this uh, sticking the knife in the ground, then you're going to remove any residue that's left on the knife, and then there's no worry. Chazal were just worried that you may there may be some residue left on the knife, which would come off on the bread when you cut the bread. And again, our our bread is not really real bread. If you take sourdough bread, which the crust is really hard, and that's the, a, a a true sourdough bread is a hard crust and a soft inside, soft inside. And when you start cutting through that bread with your knife, if there's any residue of of fat on it from from cheese or from meat, then you could end up transferring that and eating that together with the opposite type of food. And that's why Chazal didn't want you to do that. But they said if you do nitzah or in our case, as we mentioned a few moments ago, if you use it for, you clean it with steel wool, then you've removed that residue of, of grease and fat that maybe remain on the cutlery, on the knife, and then you can actually use that knife to cut bread and eat it with the opposite type of food. And eat it with the opposite type of food. If you cut open a fruit and vegetable, and you realize that you didn't just cut through the vegetable, you cut through a worm that's inside the vegetable. And I had a question like this a couple of weeks ago, somebody phoned me up with a scenario like that, and you must clean the knife well. You have to clean the knife well because uh, we don't consider it fatty enough that you need an eater, but you do need to clean it well because you don't want to leave any residue of the insect on your on your knife. So that really brings us to the end of the halachas of kitchen that we wanted to be, we began to learn when it came to the Yom Tov of Shurs and to build up to the holidays we're just heading towards the holiday season uh, so people already begin to go away in three weeks and then definitely post Tishabov so we should be aware of what what risks there are in using some of the utensils and some of the, the elect, electrical items that are inside a holiday home and hopefully we will have a kosher holiday and not Shalom, the opposite uh, the holidays are lead up to Elul we want them to be as kosher as possible and not a time when we lose, we lose sight of what's important to us in our lives. What we'd like to discuss now is move on to the halachas of Tfilas Haderech and maybe one or two other halachas. And if we manage to finish those today, we'll be fine. If we don't, not, we'll finish them off in, in a couple of weeks time. And otherwise, in two weeks time, we'll go through the halachas of which are relevant to nine days in Tishabov and particularly to a Tishabov, which is a Nidcha as it is this year. The halachas of Tfilas which are again relevant 
to anybody who's traveling, and particularly if you're going away on holiday, you need to you need to know the the parameters of this halacha. They're not so simple the halachas of Tfilas Adarach, a little bit more complex, but they are very important because we want everybody to journey to their destination safely and return safely. And this is the Gemara in Masechta's Brachas. The Gemara tells us, Omer Abiyakov, Omer Abchista. Abiyakov says in the name of Abchista, Kal Hayetse Baderach. Anybody who travels goes out on a journey. He has to say a tefillah, which is known as tefillas haderech. It's not a bracha, it's a tefillah. It is a bracha as well, but it's a bracha in the context of a tefillah. Rabbi adds that when one says a tefillah, he shouldn't say the tefillah in the singular sense. He should say it on behalf of everybody. And Rashi explains, and that's if a person uses a a wording of a tefillah in the plural, so he's all inclusive, not just specific to himself, but inclusive of other people. And then there's the, the wonderful school of doubling for other people. You get greater ability for that tefillah to be heard. And therefore the wording of the tefillah saderech is all in plural form. And the wording of the Tfilah Sadarach goes basically something like this, depending which uh, Siddha you pick up on your journey and which Nusach you're going to be following. But the basic text of all Tfilah Sadarachs is Yehiratzim l'fanech Hashem alakeinu v'lekeh v'seinu. Shetolicheinu l'shalem means that he should lead us in peace. V'satzideinu l'shalem and he should place our footsteps in peace. V'satzideinu l'shalem and he should guide us in peace. We should be able to reach our destination in life, in happiness, and in peace. Some people add the words v'sachsereinu v'shalom, and there's a slight misconception in the world, and they believe that v'sachsereinu v'shalom has to be said when you are on a return journey, meaning when you're taking a journey up to Manchester and coming back the same day, then you say v'sachsereinu v'shalom. And but if you're turning one way and you're going to stay there overnight, then you don't need to say Sachsarein Lashalom. And that's a slight misunderstanding. The Sachsarein Lashalom is just a wording that some people add, different wording that was uh, in the Gemara. Some people have it in the Gemara, some people don't have it in the Gemara. And if you are journeying and you do agree to the word Sachsarein Lashalom, you should always say it. And if you don't agree to the, that wording, then you never say it. Uh, there's no times when you do it and you don't say it. It may have become very uh, uh, one of these. Customs have just uh, evolved over time. That's, it's become to be said when you're on a return, when you're doing a return journey on the same day. If you're not doing a return journey, then you don't. But that's just uh, something that may have evolved. It's not halachic. But then you finish off with All of this is in plural. Sagienu, the nu at the end always turns the word into a plural. May you rescue us from all enemies, bandits, highwaymen, and animals, wild animals. And then, even though today we don't have bandits and we don't have highwaymen and we don't have uh, uh, wild animals on, on the roads that are a risk to our lives, but these are just terminology that includes all different types of negativity that could cause us 
uh, trouble and and, and uh, prevent us from arriving at our destination in one piece. And the, the wording of the bracha includes ayev ayev They could include wild drivers. They could include uh, deer on the on the on the road. They could include any other sort of of disturbance that could chas get in our way, accidents. Uh, all that's included in in the in the wording of the tefillah. And it finishes off Borchato Hashem Shemea Tefilo. In many Sidurim you will find a list of Sukim which followed Philosadarh. A whole list of different Psukim. Some say Yivrechacha, some say uh, many different Psukim. Those Psukim are not part of the Tfilah of Philosadarh. They are later additions that have been added into the Siddha as Skulois, as like uh, very nice additions that if you say them they might help. In the protection of the, of yourselves when, whilst you're on your journey. Don't forget, Chazal tell us, Kola Drachim Sakona. All journeys have an element of risk to them. And therefore, we try to minimize that risk by saying Tfilis Adarach. And we add all these different scholars. Some people say, say, uh, Minginois. It's a, it's a Kafachaim says you should say, Lamatseh Minginois Mizmashir seven times. And, and then you will try, your journey, you will, your journey will take you there in peace. And you, 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 he actually writes that you're assured to actually arrive in peace. Seven times. Some people say the Yeshe Besesa. Yeshe Besesa is the, the part of Tehillim, which is called Shiras Pegoim. It's known as the Shir, the song which removes all negativity. That's why we say it when we're on, a, when we're walking with a, with a mitta on a little levaya. So we, we say the yeshe besesa to try and remove any negativity. There shouldn't be any negativity around the mitta. Uh, uh, we say Shabbos morning. So our Shabbos should be beautiful without any interference from negativity. So therefore here as well, when you're on a journey, some people say yeshe besesa. Some say shiamas esena elaharim. These are all wonderful scholars. None of these are halachic. None of these need to be said. Anybody wants to say them, they can spend your journey saying as many shamans as you like. It's totally your choice. But be aware that none of these are part of the Tfilas Adarach. They are not part of the Takonas Chazal. The Takonas Chazal was to say the bracha alone of the Hirotzain, which finishes off with Shemiah Tfilah. That's all that one needs to say. As is a bracha, ideally you should say it Bamida, you should say it standing. Now, however, that's a little bit difficult. It's very difficult to say to Philosopher when you're standing, because usually we say to Philosopher when we're in a car on a journey. Uh, I remember one time driving along a motorway, and uh, it was just short of Gateshead. I was just leaving Gateshead, driving down south somewhere. I do not remember what, where, and who. And I remember seeing a gentleman who lived in Gateshead park his car. This is many years ago. Park his car on the hard shoulder, get out. Stand on the edge of the hard shoulder, say to Philosoderich, get back in his car and carry on driving. And I really suggest that you should not do a thing like that. It's highly dangerous and, and must not be done. So despite the fact that Alochas does say one ideally should say to Philosoderich when you're standing, you're far better off to stay sitting and say to Philosoderich. You can't even say to Philosoderich and stop the car because you, it's dangerous to stop the car on the side of a road uh, at all. So you're much better off just to continue driving and Either have a passenger say it so that you can be yoitza with them, or say it. The average you can say it even when you're driving. You can say it even when you're slightly, slightly busy. But as long as you're saying to you're, you're better off. But do not stop your car in the middle of nowhere, and do not stand on the side of the road. 
on a train, the halacha tells us clearly, and others say that clearly on a train you also have to say tefillah saderich. Now on a train you may be able to stand. You may be in a position, a place where you could get up and, and say your tefillah saderich. If you're not going to cause a chil Hashem, you're not going to obstruct anybody, uh, then you can comfortably get up and say it, then you can say it standing. If you can't, then you say it sitting. That's not a problem at all. On an airplane, Again, you should say to the Saderich, that's a minig. Uh, we'll discuss in a moment wh- where and when one says to the Saderich, but the minig in, in today's world is accepted that we should say to the Saderich on an airplane. Again, you're going to find it hard to say to the Saderich standing up because we're going to discuss it a bit later in a few moments the, the exact timing for Tfilah Saderich as you leave a town and as you're on a train and as you're in on an airplane and at that point in time you're going to find it hard to say it's standing, you'll probably get screamed at by the stewardess, you don't want to make a Chilil Hashem and therefore you're best off just to say sitting and, and stay sitting and say it's sitting Now, so when do we say Tfilah Saderich? When is the appropriate time to say Tfilah Saderich? Now, the Chazal tell us that the optimum place to say Tfilah Saderich is when you're journeying on a journey. You've got to be outside of the city, 70 amas away from the city. 70 amas is not very far. It's 41 meters roughly, but it's 70 amas away from the city. We don't have clear delineated borders to our London, it's very difficult to know exactly where the border of London is because London is built up all the way through to Watford almost. Uh, not sure from Watford till St. Anne's is built up, but it's quite built up to Watford. So it's very difficult to know exactly where 70 hours outside, outside London is. But the Aloha does say it should be said when you're 70 hours away from the, from the city. But the Ebed, if you, are intending to journey beyond the 70 Amas, then as long as you're on the journey already, then you can say it. So for, for that count, but the average, you can say it as soon as you hit the M1 and you're already starting your journey. So we ideally wait till you leave the town. So if you're leaving Gateshead, I would say once you pass Washington service station, you've left town and then you can say your Twitter Saderich. If you're leaving Manchester, I can't tell you exactly because I don't remember. And if you're leaving London, I would say around Watford area, you've probably left London and then you can say Twitter Saderich. But the yeah, evidence, if you're not sure exactly where and when, then just say it as when you, when you hit the M1. Once you've started the M1, you've, you've, you've passed the uh, built up area on the M1. Say it then because at that point, but the yeah, you're Yota anyway, and that's fine. You only say Twitter Saderich if you're going to be traveling at Parso. A parcel the minimum distance out of town where there's an element of risk and danger is when you travel a parcel away from the town. And therefore Chazal said that they only instituted the concept of Tfilus when you're traveling one parcel. The parcel is roughly, according to the Chazanish, 4.7 miles, 4.7 kilometers, sorry, approximately three miles. So you need to be roughly, according to the Chazanish, three miles out. You need to be traveling on a journey which is three miles away outside of town outside of the city, outside of the town, in order to obligate you to say Tfilas In order to obligate you to say Tfilas And this is where the one of the biggest uh, controversies with Tfilas comes into play. And that is, do we need to be a parser outside of a town in order for there to be an obligation for Tfilas Or do I need to travel a parser away from where I am? But even if I'm within a parcel of a town, 
Do I still need to say Tfilas Adar? Which means to say as follows. If I travel up the M1, I am probably all the way from the M1 up to the, right way up to the north. I'm probably well within three miles of a town. I walk up the M1, I'll have St. Anne's on the left and I'll have, uh, uh, Milton Keynes and I'll have, uh, I'll always be within a three mile distance of a town. And if I need to be outside of the three mile distance of a town in order to be obligated to say Tfilas Adarach, then that creates a little bit of a problem because I mean, I'm traveling from London to Manchester, from London to Gateshead. I'm almost never more than three miles away from a town. So does that absolve me from my obligation to say this to the Sadarach, or does it not? And that's a discussion that the Chofetz Chaim writes in the Bir Halacha, in his Mishnah Berurah, but he actually was doubtful about this. He wasn't sure whether one should say to the Sadarach, one shouldn't say to the Sadarach, if one is within three Passoys of a town. Not your town, of any town because you haven't left danger zone. If the concept of three passages is because that's the danger area, you haven't left the danger area, then perhaps you shouldn't be saying it. And the Mishnah Buru was really doubtful about that. And according to Mishnah Buru, it could be that we shouldn't be saying Tfilis Adarach for most of our journeys. However, the Chaznish seemed to take on, and that seems to be quite clearly the Minig of uh, Klalis role today, as long as you're traveling three passages from your town, even if you are going to be within the distance of three passages, it's not the distance of three passages which is the key element of the of the instruction of Chazal. It's that you need to travel three passages, and as long as you've traveled three passages, you need to say Tfilas Aderich, and that therefore will be the reason why we say Tfilas Aderich on every journey beyond uh, the perimeters of London. We will say Tfilas Aderich so that we should be protected on our journey. When you're traveling on a train, the same problem would arise. The train will leave King's Cross or Euston or Waterloo or whichever train station you're traveling from and will will eventually travel out of London. But again, we'll be within a few miles and less than three miles of any city. There'll be many villages, towns and cities along the way which are within three mile distance. But according to the Chaznish and according to the Minig, we will still say to Sadarach because we are journeying three miles from our start of our journey outside of the town of our journey, and therefore we will say to Sadarach. So once you pass through the perimeter of the city town that you're traveling from, you will then say to Sadarach on a train. When you're flying on an airplane, that's a little bit more complex. When you're flying on an airplane, where should you say Tfilas Adarach? And this is a Messiah that we have from Rav Munk. They used to tell the, the congregants of the GGBH that when you're on the runway and the plane is about to take off and it's picked up speed and it's about to take off, at that point you should be saying Tfilas Adarach. And that seems to be the accept, accepted custom, particularly in our shul, but I think even beyond. If you're traveling a long journey, more than a parser, many miles, ideally you should be saying your Tfilis Aderech when you've left the city, 70, 70 amas away from the city, but within the first parser, within the first three miles. And that really creates a bit of a problem because we don't really know where the city finishes, so we're not going to really know where the first three miles are. But again, this is only Lechatchila. It's not the Eved. It's not the Eved. And as soon as you've left the city, you can say the Tfilis Aderech. But if you didn't say it within the first parsa, you can carry on saying it as long as you have a parsa left of your journey to your destination. If you're within a parsa of your destination, that means within three miles of your destination, then you can't say it. But if you're not within three miles of your destination, then you're fine. Then you do not need to say, then you can still carry on saying Tfilis Aderech, even though the majority of your journey has already passed.
Very interesting discussion, and we'll finish off with that tonight because I have to run to this chasna, and then we'll finish off the halachas of Tfilas uh, in two weeks' time and one or two other interesting halachas that you might come across on your holiday, and then we'll finish off with the halachas of the nine days. In two weeks' time, it's just three weeks, I won't be running to a chasna, Hashem. Uh, maybe we will. With Siat Dishmaya, the Mashiach will come between them, and we could have a chasna in two weeks' time. But as things stand, two weeks' time, I won't be running away, so I'll be able to hopefully be, finish off the halachas and clarify some of the relevant halachas of the nine days in the Tisha of Shanitra. But there's one more just interesting discussion in the Achreinim, which is relevant to what we've discussed till now. And that is when Chazal were talking about journeying a parasol, etc., etc., they were talking about somebody traveling on foot, or at best, on a beast. They were not talking about using cars and motorbikes and trains and airplanes. So do we look at the distance or do we look at the time? Meaning when Chazal said the time, the, the distance of a parasol, did they mean the distance of a parasol? Or did they mean actually the time it takes to travel a parasol? Which will therefore us, if we would translate that into car journeys, the time it takes to walk three miles, let's say, is an hour, then you would only have to start saying, if you're traveling for an hour, anything less than that, you wouldn't have to say or do we say no? A Chazal we're talking about distance and how fast you can traverse that distance is not relevant to the the concept of saying as long as that distance is going to be traveled, then you have to say and that clearly seems to be the meaning of the island. We don't wait an hour to say we say it as soon as we leave the town and within three miles of the town, etc, etc. And that's quite clearly the the way the world has accepted the halachas, though it is a discussion in the Achreinim and the later poskim as to what is really what the intent of Chazal but that's how we've accepted it and that's what we should do when it comes to Hilchus Brachos, the Gemara always says Puk go and see what's happening outside with the people meaning go and see what is the minik and what's the minik is that's what we do and clearly the minik when it comes to the Tfilas Adarach is to say it when you've left town and within three miles of the town, despite the fact that you are driving in a car and you're not walking, uh, and we still say the Tfilis Adarach, and that's therefore the meaning that we should be continuing, and that's what we should be doing. And that brings us to not the end of Tfilis Adarach, Hilchus Tfilis Adarach, but to the end of this area, this part of Hilchus Tfilis Adarach. And Bez Hashem in two weeks' time will come back and we'll continue the Halachas of Tfilis Adarach and some very interesting Halachas which you may come across in the holidays and the Halachas of Tisha B'Av Shanitcha. I wish you all a very good evening. Stay uh, hydrated. Do drink, please, because it's extremely warm out there. Still warm out there tonight, so please stay hydrated. Don't go out if you don't have to. Stay indoors if you can, and uh, stay well. And again, when it comes to fasting, it's going to be very hot on Sunday, so those who are any element of risk from the heat should not be fasting. If anybody has doubt, please give me a call. I'm not expecting a flood of calls, but please be honest with yourself. Uh, and if you're not sure, call your doctor and ask your doctor if you should be fasting at, uh, on a, a, a Shiva Thomas, which is a nitcha. And the heat is going to be 33 degrees here in London, they say. So do be careful. And I wish you all very well and have a very good evening. And only Simchas, and we'll see you back again in two weeks' time. Thank you very, very much and good night.